I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Children do not stay young for long in this savage country. There are no toys for them to play with, so they work hard and grow wise. She liberated so many of us from that fear of being despised for liking fairy tales because she showed that they were actually intrinsically fascinating and rich and full of potential. We've just stepped out into Marina's beautiful and very luscious garden where we're sitting now and rather appropriately we're surrounded by thorny rose bushes which are looking absolutely fantastic. Once upon a time, deep in the heart of the country, there lived a pretty little girl whose mother adored her, and her grandmother adored her even more. This good woman made her a red hood, like the ones that fine ladies wear when they go riding. The hood suited the child so much that soon everybody was calling her Little Red Riding Hood. That's the first line of Le Petit Chaperon Rouge, written in French in 1697 by Charles Perrault and translated by Angela Carter. Perrault is among the most influential compilers of fairy tales that ever lived, and Carter completely reinvented the way we think about the genre today. This little book, Carter's Fairy Tales of Charles Perrault, is a collaboration between two very different authors, born more than 300 years apart, but who both, in different ways, transformed the way we think about fairy tales. Carter called Perrault a humane, tolerant and kind-hearted man. Salman Rushdie called her the high sorceress of English literature, its benevolent witch queen. The fairy tale is an unusual form. It slips between oral and written versions, between the verbal and the visual. There are no original texts, just performance after performance, versions and translations carried on the voice to the page and back again, each storyteller weaving his, or more often her, own interpretations. And fairy tales are more popular than ever, with recent big-budget movie adaptations of Red Riding Hood, Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast. But beneath their glossy surfaces, we glimpse a long, often painful history of difficult childhoods and domestic hardship. And deeper still, we sense that fairy tales somehow encode uneasy truths about our own darkest fears and deepest desires. 
Hello. Hello. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm going to put up my hood and follow a trail of crumbs into the deep, dark forest of fairy tale. And for this episode, we've been welcomed into the home of our guest for today, who is Dame Marina Warner. Marina, thank you so much for welcoming us. You're welcome. <laughs> and since stepping in- inside, uh, the boiling hot day has turned into a tempestuous storm. The rain is lashing the windows, and it, it feels rather like something from a fairy tale. Uh, well, it feels very gothic, <laughs> which is extremely does. pertinent to Angela Carter. <laughs> yes, exactly. Marina Warner is Professor of English and Creative Writing at Birkbeck College in London. She is a renowned cultural historian, novelist and short story writer, the author of award-winning studies of mythology and fairy tales, such as From the Beast to the Blonde, No Go the Bogeyman, and Stranger Magic about the Arabian Nights. In 1994, she delivered the BBC Wreath Lectures on Myths of Our Time, In 2013, she was awarded the Truman Capote Award for Literary Criticism. In 2015, she was made a Dame of the British Empire. And in 2022, she became a Companion of (laughs) Honour. Marina, I can't think of anyone better place to have this conversation today about Perrault and Angela Carter. So thank you very much for... Agreeing to I'm delighted. It's a great passion of mine. Well, it's and it's also a great treat to be in your home. We're sitting now in a in a frankly magical uh, sitting room in front of a fireplace with books and papers piled to the ceiling, wonderful artworks on the walls. We're sitting under a Paul Arago, and we've just been discussing some drawings by Leonora Carrington. It's a really beautiful and and yes, magical house. So thank you for welcoming <laughs> us in. Now, in your recent short history of fairy tale called Once Upon a Time, you imagine the history of fairy tale as a map with two prominent landmarks, Charles Perrault and the Grimm brothers. Marina, would you lay out that map for us now and and kind of talk us through it? What does it look like? Well, the map should be, first of all, a world map because one of the characteristics of human beings is that they invent these fantastic stories and they seem to have always done so there isn't a culture so benighted that it doesn't have folk tales and fairy tales so but we were taking a eurocentric view at the moment um, and you'd see right in the far distant north you'd see hans christian Andersen in in denmark and south you'd see people in naples and so forth but the two really most successful collections that have been into many versions multiple versions not only translations but different editions, illustrations, so forth, are the Grimm brothers in Germany, 1812, and Charles Perrault, long before that, in France, 1694, is his first major collection. Um, and he was a courtier. He was rather different from what you'd expect because the, the, the stories are presented as if they're coming from, you know, grannies in bonnets um, or spinning wheels. But actually, he was a very sophisticated courtier at the court of Louis Fourteenth. The Sun King. The Sun King, yes. So it was a surprising move for him to mine this seam of popular tales. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because uh, he was writing at a time when, by writing about fairy tales, that was a consciously modern move, wasn't it? He, w- he was doing that in almost in opposition to 
the camp who believed that only ancient classical literature. No, it was, was a vicious, valid. vicious schism within mm-hmm. within the French culture. There were the people who at Boileau who wanted to continue with mythologies and Racine and you know the the classical stories and the myths and paganism and so forth, and to some extent a dash of Christianity. And then opposing them was Perrault led it, actually led this whole movement. It was called the Battle of the Ancients and Moderns, the Battle of the Books. And he, alongside with some other colleagues, he decided that national French culture, which was not literate and classical and not learned, not Latin and Greek, but indigenous, autochthonous and so forth, that this was the way forward to be a great modern nation. Mm-hmm. It was a very surprising and, you know, and subversive move. Right. And again, very surprising from a man you know, in a periwig who yes. was constantly enriching himself in the court. Absolutely. And it, and it, was, it became a great fashion, didn't it? And, and sort of over the course of the 18th century, more and more people tried their hand at fairy tales. And eventually, one chap called Charles-Joseph de Meyer published a 41-volume series of called The Cabinet yeah. of Fairies, yes, just, just full of That's right, stories. The Cabinet des Fées, and it went on, uh, actually continued to be published in Geneva during the French Revolution, when right. after, wow. um, in these 41 volumes. And it's very surprising that someone like Angela Carter became the translator of Perrault, mm-hmm. because she was a dedicated socialist all her life. And this was an aristocratic amusement, imitating the imagined peasants, rather like Marie Antoinette dressing up as a shepherdess. Right, so it yes. was a little bit of a... Of a, there's a sort of frivolity hanging around the problem of why Perrault and his aristocratic companions. But it, the reason that someone like Angela Carter was attracted to it is that they buried a lot of subversive mm. philosophy and ideas into this uh, form. And the women who took it up, who aren't so famous, but there were really a lot of them, I mean, really a great number, and they're now gradually being studied more. They also passed on stories that they had learned from their governesses and their staff, their ancestral homes and so Mm -hmm. forth. Um, But they saw in them a feminist message because women were often the protagonists and they were often in very difficult family situations. In many of those women's versions of the classic material, there were always messages about the need for women's emancipation, freedom, the right to choose a partner, not to be married off, Uh the right not to choose a partner, not to have a partner to be single. Some of the famous women who were involved in this never married. Which, so there was a strong revolutionary undertow to this aristocratic game. How fascinating, even as early as that. Well, these are all topics which I hope we'll be coming on to in our conversation. But just going back to looking down at this map, we've, so we've sketched out the sort of landmark of Perro, and then in the early 19th century, the Grimm's come along. And of course, this is in the middle of romanticism, isn't it? It, it takes fairy tales in another direction into deep, dark woods, kind of fairy tale castles. Yes. Well, the Grimm's are much more macabre. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, touches of macabre in Peru, definitely. Um, but the Grimm's are more generally macabre, savage and violent. And it's sort of on the edge of comedy in the sense of that, you know, the, the, where the macabre makes you laugh because it's so extreme. But the Grimm's picked up on that idea that to be France, to be truly modern, needed to have its own... French culture, which was rooted in the peasantry, because they were really romantic nationalists. Mm -hmm. And for them, it seemed that this was the true literature of Germany. Away with all this stuff from Greece and Rome, or even from the Vikings, let's look at the actual, what's actually going on in the German language. 
But they were very disappointed because, as philologists, they did a lot of work on the origins of the stories they were told. But they collected from passing people, from their contacts, from one case, the daughter of an innkeeper and so forth. But they found that a lot of them were French. <laughs> right, French, and so, before that Italian, yes, and before yes. that yes. Arabic. Yes. yes. <laughs> ah. So they, they were a little bit confounded, but disappointed. But they preserved actually a core that we only know from the Grimm's, it must be said. Right. But though they have family likenesses, as, as happens in folktales for mysterious reasons everywhere. Well, and this is a point to stress, isn't it, that although these are the names that we associate with mm. fairy tales, actually this is an oral phenomenon and they happen to write those ones down, but th these tales are being passed around and Philip Pullman has a nice line where he says that fairy tales are, are like jazz and that storytelling is an art of performance. Yes, that's and right, yes. Italo Calvino, who put together a wonderful collection of Italian folk tales, he, he quotes a Tuscan proverb which he says is, uh, the tale is not beautiful if nothing is added to it. Mm. So you get this sense that it's this whole community of uh, of storytellers mm. passing these around. Well, Calvino worked from the collections of 19th century ethnographers. And that's it, because the Grimm's were fairly pioneering in what they tried to do. You know, their first edition had pages and pages of footnotes. I mean, these were scholarly endeavours to collect the stories of the folk. But that then sparked off a move really right across Europe, including this country, including the United Kingdom. We were a bit late on the game, but on the whole, you know, the Coleridge and Wordsworth with lyrical ballads were using the folk material that they were collecting. And then later, in the 19th century, people began, you know, putting together Scottish law, Welsh law, and so forth. I mean, it was a, it was a, a major, a major cultural phenomenon to do with nationalism. Aha. Uh -huh. And I guess that was one of the elements that Angela Carter would later want to break apart when she yes, got inside them. Yes, her, her interests were very different. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. Let's, let's, so let's go back now to Charles Perrault. Mm. And you've described him as a, as a courtier at the court of a Sun King. What was he like as a person, do you think? Um, well, he seems to have been extremely affectionate to children right. because he actually used his son's name as the author of the first edition of the Comte de Mamerlois, Mother Goose Tales. He, he said it... Wow, that's some dramatic thunder off stage. <laughs> I'm glad the sky has approved yes. what I was saying. Or perhaps it wasn't. Perhaps they wanted to blast me. <laughs> anyway, so he published it under the name of his son, Pierre d'Arrancourt. And for a long time, there raged you know, great controversies about whether it truly was by his son. They were a very successful family. All the Perrault's were they were strivers and achievers, and we owe Claude Perrault, his brother, the current Louvre, the actual design right, of the Louvre. Louvre. That's, that's Perrault himself manoeuvred his brother into the position. He was his brother wasn't an architect at all, <laughs> and I'm afraid the palm did not go to Bernini. Bernini was in Paris hoping for the job. Oh gosh! Yeah. Wow, and, and Perrault Claude, managed and to Claude elbow Perrault his brother it. into it. How extraordinary! I mean, yes. As Carter said, he. he Perrault would write about Puss in Boots and being such a, a kind of wily trickster, and there's an element of that in him. It's yes, that he was a yes, he was a schemer. <laughs> right. Yes. Now you've mentioned how the subtitle for his book of fairy tales was Tales of Mother um, Goose. Yes. In the first edition, the frontispiece shows a, a kind of old lady mm. by the fireside. Yes, yeah, a crow. Like we're, we're sitting by the fireside now, speaking to a group of little. Children, yes, and on the wall behind her head are the words "Conte de ma mère Loy." Yes, tales of Mother, mother Goose. goose yes. This Mother Goose character was a sort of 
catch-all for that type yeah, of figure, yeah, wasn't Yes, it? I mean, there were some other phrases for these types of stories, including one of the other stories that he wrote, which is Donkey Skin Tales. Mm -hmm. So they were conventionally known by the names of either the heroines or the people. But this storyteller, this old crone, who is always of a lower class, that's important, mm -hmm. because that's part of the idea that you're really drinking at the fountain of the authentic people. And the children sometimes... Um, in this conventional image are not only children, her children, as it were, or her grandchildren, but also children of, that she's looking after because she's a nanny oh, figure, oh. a nanny figure, sometimes a wet nurse figure. And, and frequently in this kind of frontispiece, in this frontispiece she's inside by a hearth, but sometimes she's sitting at the door of her cottage. And the cottage is often removed a little bit from the town from and is a kind of secret place on the edge of the forest. These... Old women who tell stories are old wives, as in old wives' tale, uh -huh. or as in good wife in terms of witches. They edge into the idea of the witch, Inter the idea of the canny knowledge, of having internal knowledge. Right, and almost so, a character in, in a fairy tale themselves. Yes, yes. Oh, they're very mirrored in the fairy tales. I mean, there are good fairies and bad fairies, but they're frequently old women or disguised as old women. You know, the poisoned witch. I mean, you remember the, from Snow White? Of course. With, with the apple, that she's yes. disguised herself as an old woman. Yes, right, of course. Mm -hmm. So um. the idea they're passing on deep knowledge. And that's something that Angela Carter responded to. She liked that idea that buried within the stories, there was some kernel of old knowledge that had been passed on from women. Right, and a reason why mm. these stories survived. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting contrast, isn't it, in Perrault's tales that we have this kind of folk fireside outsider element but then on the other side we get these kind of golden courtyards like beautiful chandeliers mirrored walls and the other settings in his tales are ones that he knew from court they're kind of extremely yes Perrault's tone is quite difficult to catch I mean he's he's frequently tongue-in-cheek and in the context of the times, when he describes all this lavish and extravagant uh, excess of wealth, he really is poking some kind of mocking finger you know, at, at the excesses of the Sun King. Because by the time he compiled this collection, um, he was no longer in favour at court. Aha, uh -huh. oh, that's mm. important. Mm. It's interesting that um, before he compiled his famous collection, he, he sort of tried his hand at fairy tales a little first. And he... One of his experiments was was the tale you've mentioned already, Donkey Skin, which he he published in verse in the early 1690s, and that's a, a kind of version of the Cinderella story, isn't it? A, it's an, a, a version which has many different types and very well known in medieval literature, and also it gave Shakespeare the idea for the beginning of Pericles. It's a story of father daughter incest. The father wants to marry his daughter after her mother, his wife, dies. And the mother on her deathbed says, I want you to promise never to marry again unless someone is beautiful and sometimes says, as good as me. I mean, there's always a slight streak of misogyny in, in these kind of tales, which also attracted Angela Carter. She wanted to deal with that. Mm -hmm. She wanted to confront that and expose it and change it. And so when his daughter grows up, she does look just as beautiful and is as good as his former wife. So that's when he proposes to her. Perrault turns it in his verse version, which mm. is not the one Andrew Carter translated, uh -huh. um, but in his verse version, it's, it's ribald and comic, highly comic. Mm. And I think that's a very interesting approach to difficult subjects like child abuse. In fact, I'm very much a partisan of this 
veiling in, in kind of tongue-in-cheek feline mockery of what a, is an important message. Because basically the young the girl who's proposed to gets away with the help of her fairy godmother. But the story upholds her. She's not a rebellious daughter who hasn't obeyed her mm-hmm. father. She's, she's completely the heroine of the story. She's totally upheld. So in a way this passes on in a very sort of subtle and devious way a message about it's okay to disobey your father in some cases and this mm. is one of them. Interesting. And it's interesting that Carter chose to place her translation of Donkey Skin at the very end of mm. her collection. Mm. So Perrault would always finish his fairy tales with a little moral that sort of... Yes. Or even sometimes a pair of morals that sort of drew them. They're often contrasted. Often, yes, often. Yeah. <laughs> just more confusing than if there had been one. But it means that the final words of, of Carter's translation are um, that as long as there are children, mothers, grandmothers and mother goose, this tale will always seem new. Mm. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying, this kind of passing down from female generation to female generation. And also this kind of sexual secret mm. but that, is, that has been hidden in a, in a coating of you know, expert storytelling that's quite amusing and entertaining and, and feels safe. That's mm-hmm. important. It feels safe. So the fairy tale is a way of passing on a lot of hard truths and yet not making the poor child completely spooked. <laughs> well, let's talk about one of the best-known fairy tales. We said that Donkey Skin was a, a kind of version of Cinderella. And in Perrault's main famous collection, there is his version of mm. the Cinderella story. Mm. Now, Cinderella has had so many mm-hmm. different names and all different versions from different parts of the world. In, in Perrault's, she's called Cendrillon. Um, in the Grimm's, she's called Ashen Puttle. Mm. In the English version, she's called Mossy Coat. But there's always a connection with sort of being by the hearth. The only place she can curl up to sleep is sort of in the cinders it's by the It's being rejected yes. and being somehow disfigured. Uh-huh. The, the, she's, her face is sooty and she's not allowed to wash. And she's creaturely. One of the structural axioms of fairy tale is that there's a contrast between being beastly and being human. And that's all something that really Angela Carter really liked and very much overturned. I mean, she Absolutely. really did something different with that. Mm-hmm. And so what, tell us about Perrault's version of Cinderella. What, what are the elements we might recognise from it? Well, actually, Perrault is not someone who likes magic very much. He's frequently, you know, not apart from talking animals, which is de rigueur, really, for the fairy tale. But in his Cinderella, he goes full tilt for magical effects, which have become the beloved sequence in the, the pumpkin coach, the rat coachman, yes. the, lizard the lizard footman. Yes. And, and he has little jokes you know, within that because the lizard footmen are there because they were famously thought to be extremely lazy. So the idea of them sunning themselves under a stone. And, you know, that's sort of, right. I mean, that's meant to be a kind of comment on... <laughs> on and that's, he, he's full of little worldly sides. Uh-huh. And then uh, very important, of course, is the stroke of midnight. This idea that there's a prohibition and that she breaks the prohibition, she will be turned back. And that's a very deep magical idea because there's not only the idea that an enchantment has a, comes to an end, but also that something vanishes under the ground. I mean, that the transformation is that all her finery has just vanished into fairyland, into the world it came from. It rose from there and it's gone back there. And then there's the famous episode of the glass slipper. Right. And everybody is always very interested in the fact that this might be a survival of oral storytelling because verre, glass in French, is the same word as ermine, Mm. fur. So it's possible that when 
Perrault heard the story from a putative servant or granny or whatever, the word was a soulier de verre. Right. I mean, an ermine slipper. Right, and he heard glass. And, and he heard glass, which, of course, was a brilliant symbolic move mm. because the glass slipper has a, all kinds of associations with things cracking and breaking, virginity and so forth. Of course. Yes, I think it's uh, Philip Pullman in the introduction to his... Um, his version of the Grimm mm-hmm. fairy tales, who says that uh, he doesn't believe it was a mistake. He thinks, you know, it's a very brilliant yes. move to make it a glass. Yes, slipper. yes. But well, we can't ever know, no, really. of course but... not, yeah. Mm. And and there are some surprising elements. You know, she's very generous to her horrible stepsisters, y- yes. isn't she? Yes, Well, actually, that's something that uh, Angela Carter particularly brings out. I mean, she, mm. she, she liked the fact that Perrault's versions are less mean-spirited than right. the Grimm's. You know, the, the stepmother give them a knife to cut off their toes and cut off their heels yeah. to, to fit into fit the fit into the bloody slipper. <laughs> and they're and only then, exposed because the yes, blood starts running yes, out of yes. the shoe. Turn and peep, turn and peep, there's blood within the shoe. Yeah. <laughs> and other versions around the world that you know, they're some really grisly things. Um in the earlier Italian version by Basile, the Cinderella in that version is called Zezola, she ends up killing her stepmother so that her governess can become her new stepmother and then she turns Against her, in the yes. End. Well, she she then, having promised that they, everything will be all right and she would no longer be treated like a half cat, because it's called Agatha Cenerentola, the yes. half cat. She turns. She produces seven daughters of her own, <laughs> all of whom are to take precedence over poor Zelo, Zezola. <laughs> so, 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 so that's. But then I think she does kill her. Oh gosh! Yes, well, she does kill her. And there's other, you know, in Indonesia. So she kills a, two people. Oh my goodness! Yes, you don't think so. She isn't. She isn't sweet murder. and kind. She doesn't <laughs> buy peerages for her sisters' husbands. Well, that's a perfect moment then to perhaps move locations to somewhere to talk about another fairy tale and to talk a little bit more about Angela Carter and her own fairy tales. Too many roses. Too many roses bloomed on enormous thickets that lined the path, thickets bristling with thorns, and the flowers themselves were almost too luxuriant, their huge congregations of plush petals somehow obscene in their excess, their whirled, tightly budded cores outrageous in their implications. The mansion emerged grudgingly out of this jungle. Okay, we're just heading down through Marina's house, heading out into the garden to talk about our next fairy tale. Oh, and sunshine now. Oh, it is cooler. It's much cooler, isn't it? The garden's yeah. got much smaller because it's all grown up so much. <laughs> <laughs> so the rain has stopped now, and we've just stepped out into Marina's beautiful and very luscious garden uh, where we're sitting now and rather appropriately we're surrounded by thorny rose bushes which are looking absolutely fantastic Marina. What roses are we looking at here? They look wonderful. The, the, the ones the, the climbing roses which is really rather like Sleeping Beauty Thicket <laughs> right. which is very very unruly and has to be pruned back very heavily every year <laughs> but even so it becomes you know, tempestuous. It's, um, it's called Kifskate. It's a very famous rose. It's it makes uh, sort of drifts of flowers. They're not, it's not fully out. Okay. And that's all entangled with another monstrous tentacular rose called mermaid, which oh, are the big yellow ones. That... It's very stunning. Mm. Sitting among these roses, Marina, this feels like a, a good place to talk about Sleeping Beauty, another of the very famous tales from 
Charles Perrault's collection. How does he present his version of The Sleeping Beauty and the Wood? Well, it has a very, very surprising ending, (laughs) which is almost always cut, especially for children, uh, in which after the prince has had two children with The Sleeping Beauty, um, he brings her back to his family palace, um, where his mother is of the ogre race. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he knows that, but he thinks that the children will be fine. But no, she smells delicious little babies. And one day he goes off to fight a war, and she tells the cook to serve up the children, well, the first child, and that she wants him cooked with sauce Robert. Which sauce is, Robert. Which is a typical Perrault touch of kind of worldly, courtly knowledge with with a sort of barbaric <laughs> cannibalism. Um, and then it's the same thing happens to the, ne- to the little girl. But the um, cook, is, as in Snow White and other stories, you know, is too tender-hearted to butcher the children, so he hides them. But the, then the ogre mother hears the children crying and is furious and decides that she's going to murder them all in a great vat of toads and vipers and horrible menacing animals but of course in the end she's the one who's thrown into the vat and that ending there's no motive given this is a perfect example of motiveless malignancy right. which actually um, Coleridge particularly praised right, being right. Sort of so thrilling to read or to listen to and anyway so she, we have no idea why she's impelled to eat her grandchildren but <laughs> yes. um, it makes for a very very grisly ending which is as I said always cut Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a vision of the worst possible mother-in-law, isn't it? <laughs> your, your husband's mother eating your children. Um, and Carter points out that Perrault was also sometimes, uh, he would censor his sources and, and sort of Sleeping Beauty is one example because, for instance, in his version, there's no kiss when uh, the prince wakes up the Sleeping Beauty. And in fact, in the earlier version, the Italian version by Straparola, she actually becomes pregnant while yes, still yes, asleep. Yes, I'm afraid it's a rape, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But in the straparola, the reason that she wakes up is that one of the children mistakes a finger for her breast and the finger with a splinter oh. flax under the nail and he sucks on her finger and pulls out the flax and that's when she wakes up. Whereas in the Perrault, none of that has happened. Certainly there isn't any, any rape. Yes, and, he um, over that. Full of humorous asides. Like the sauce Robert. Yes, exactly. I love that sauce Robert. Oh, the other thing that's very funny is when the cook wonders about cooking her, when he's ordered to cook her, because though she was very fair and beautiful and still looked very young, she was over 100 years old and her meat might be rather tough. <laughs> that is good. That's very good. And while we're talking about the, you know, the sleeping beauty, sleeping for 100 years or more, one of the things that's often said is that fairy tales are dreamlike in some way and and to what extent do you see fairy tales as being like dreams i think angela carter once said that they're almost like informal dreams dreamed in public yes i think that's a it's a very good line she's got so many wonderful insights and absolutely brilliant ways of thinking about them i mean she makes an analogy with monarchy and how we talk about monarchy in the tabloids which actually is very relevant to today even though she wrote this probably 30 years ago and so there is a sense in which our preoccupations are mirrored in fairy tales. That's why she explains that they're all princes and princesses. She says it's not because they're actually worshipping the monarchy. It's an idea of reflecting our ways of thinking about things, and this is a way of expressing 
the psychic importance of these figures to uh-huh. us. She says, you know, a fairy tale is a story in which one king goes to another king to borrow a cup of sugar. <laughs> That's very good, isn't it? She's interested in how fairy tales don't have rounded characters. They have figures and types. Mm. And, they, and it's a kind of shorthand, a sort of a lexicon of, of ways of thinking about human problems. And they need to be abstract because they're not particular. You're not Henry. You're the prince. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now... We've mentioned already that Angela Carter was commissioned by the publisher Victor Galantz in 1976 to to translate Perrault. And it was published the following year in 1977 with illustrations by the artist Martin Ware. And Marina, you're you're actually holding a first edition of this translation. Well, well, because Angela Carter gave it to me. um, And it's even even inscribed to me. That's wonderful. What has she written there? She says, with love from Angela, and in brackets, and forgive the errors in the introduction... (laughs) With, a, with, a, with an exclamation mark. I, I mean, the Renault era was in the introduction. I don't know why she felt oh, that. Oh, flattering. That's wonderful. Yes. Well, I mean, and the, and the illus- it's, sadly, in the, in the current Penguin edition, the illustrations aren't reproduced, but they're rather spectacular, yes, aren't they? Yes, no, it would be good that they would be reprinted because actually they, they show already the way that she was thinking. I mean, she must have had conversations with him about them. And they show that she was already thinking that the fairy tales had this troubling, latent content because they're not at all fairy tale like well apart from the fact that the puss is standing up and wearing boots but um, mostly they they're dark they're d- definitely black and white but there's a lot of black and for example the yes. the, the sleeping beauty herself is corpse white very stiff and apparently lying on her on bum bun. yeah and so she looks very rigid um, and he is not approaching at all in a lover like fashion she's not you know kneeling or genuflecting he's stiff and looks absolutely aghast. The light that is very strong on her face, which makes her look like a corpse, very white, is reflected up towards his face, and his eyes, as it were, staring out of his head. He is feeling the power of the enchantment. Uh-huh. And it's not altogether benign. So that, that, that's what she was, she was trying to get at in the bloody chamber, that, that, that kind of current of unease. And, and Martin Ware had already as it were, divined it. Um, but he does have moments of you know, wit along the same lines as Peru. Uh, there's a vignette of a lizard that introduces the morals. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, a ca- canny lizard. Nice. <laughs> and, and also she, you know, the lilac fairy is a, it's an old schoolmistress. Yes. With, with a big hat. Pince-nez on the end of her nose. Yes. Mm. Now, Marina, you, you knew Angela Carter. How, how did you meet her? What, and... Um, I met, like? I, met her, I met her through my, um, her very, very close friend and publisher and editor, Carmen Khalil, uh-huh. who w- was also became my editor. Who founded and, Virago. And, and who fra- founded Virago. And, and she was um, an immensely important figure in Angela's life because, first of all, she really believed, you know, she, she wrote, I think, after her first encounter, she is a real writer. And Carmen was a very astute and, and very combative and persuasive person. So it was important for even though Angela had had a lot of success with her early books, mm. I mean, so she wasn't as if she was a novice, but she was having a bit of difficulty getting some books published, and Carmen just took her up and never, never swayed in her allegiance to her. So it was really a powerful relationship. And they shared a similar politics, but a similar caustic, satirical wit. And, and why do you think Galantz approached 
Angela Carter to translate Perrault. She'd, she'd, uh, in 1976, she was 36 years old. She'd written five novels, one of which had won the Somerset Maugham Award, uh, some short stories, some poetry collections, a couple of children's books. So she, she wasn't a new writer, but as you say, she, she'd had some success, but moderate success. Why, why do you think he approached her? I think that she was very attracted in a kind of provocative way to the Ancien Regime. She was really a revolutionary, but like a lot of revolutionaries, her objects of attack were very fascinating to her. Right. And, and then, of course, she suspected that there was a lot of material about women there. I mean, she, know, mm. she knew the stories, after all. And she wanted to find out more about what women had been saying about women in the past and in this reprehensible aristocratic setting. So she probably started off with rather um, antagonistic views to what Perrault actually uh, represented. But then she found that she was taken with him, captivated by him, mm. because she calls him very nice things. Yes, she? she's she very says, complimentary in yes, her introduction. Yes, yes. Interestingly, in the, in the current introduction to the Penguin edition, Jack Zipes, another mm. eminent folklorist, his kind of analysis of what Carter has done to Perrault is that she's made the stories more earthy, he says, more in tune with her radical vision of aesthetics and the efficacy of storytelling. He says, as a result, Carter returns Perrault and his tales to the folk. I think that's, I mean, I'm a great admirer of Jack Zipes, who's also a friend, and actually reminded me that one of the things that Angela Carter did for me at the very beginning of our friendship was she introduced me to Jack Zipes. And um, I went to Paris. He was then living in Paris because he was working on a lot of French fairy tales. And um, I thought I was going to meet a sort of grizzled, you know, very learned old scholar. Um, and he, he's a, he was a tremendous athlete in his youth. And he also looks like, looked then like Steve McQueen. <laughs> wow. so, so when I came back to London, I said, Angela, you never said to me, you know, that Jack Zipes was this unbelievable hunk. And, and, and she said, yes, he's a secret I keep for my friends. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, she, she worked on this collection, which was published in 77. And then, as we've already mentioned, this somehow led to the work for which perhaps she's best remembered and best known, The Bloody Chamber mm -hmm. and Other Stories which was also published by Galantz in 1979, so just two years later. Can you tell us a little bit about how she came to write that book? Do you think it was a direct response to working on the Perrault translations? Well, you have to go back a little bit to her previous interests. I mean, she did a lot of medieval literature at university, and she was really taken with that. She was also a very good Shakespearean. She really knew Shakespeare's plays very, very well. So she loved Spencer. She, she liked the fairy tradition in lit, which she'd studied. But nobody reads Spencer now. So it's amazing to think that reading Spencer actually has a relationship to the bloody chamber, but it does. These allegorical figures, these, fa these fairy enchantments, the landscape of another world, the idea that you can transmute the present world, the present world is you, it is your world, you can actually transmute it into some kind of pleasurable other world. And, and also she was a real apostle of pleasure. She really, really believed in pleasure, and she was interested in its forms and how it, and its mi mixtures and its antitheses and so forth. She, she was really thought that was an important quality to pursue as a literary person. So it had been in her mind, you know, why did she want to do Perrault, and then why did it give her pleasure? Why were these stories so appealing for so many centuries? 
Um, what was it about them? And then, as I said before, she, there was an inadequacy there too. The good women were too obliging and sweet and meek and mild. And she wanted to give it some fight, some, some snap of excitement. So the, the Bloody Chamber, for those who haven't read it, are, are ten fairy tales, all in some way inspired by existing fairy tales, mostly by Perrault's yes, fairy yes. tales. Certain clusters, actually. She yes. Doesn't, she, she doesn't do all of them. but. And what she said was that her intention was not to do versions, or, or as the American edition of the book said, horribly adult fairy tales. That's her line. But she wants to extract the latent content from the traditional stories and use it as the beginnings of new stories. And so she creates this um, book, and it is an extraordinary volume, isn't well, it? Well, one has to mention that she's the most wonderful writer. Yeah. I mean, it's really her use of... not only It's not only vocabulary, which is extraordinary, but the, all her study and reading and everything, and, and her love of film, too, all gets into her language, which is a mixture of extremely sophisticated and very demotic. And she has a way of addressing you directly, mm. frequently, mm. addressing the reader. And actually, she might have picked that up from Perrault, who does that, mm-hmm. getting that into the energy of the syntax and the prose. I mean, she was an absolute mistress of that. She it, was such yeah. a good writer. A, they are a joy to read. They're peculiar too, aren't they? Mm. They, they, mm. they? They give you frissons all the time. They've, they're bizarre. Yeah, they they're exciting. They're exciting. Surprise. Yeah, they definitely are. Well, we'll be talking about a couple in relation to Perrault's tales. But while we're here talking about The Sleeping Beauty, let's talk about the, the earliest of the stories in The Bloody Chamber, the one that she started work on first. In 1976, she wrote a radio play called Vampirella. She was thinking about what to write, and apparently she, she mm. ran a pencil along a radiator, and it made her think of someone's long nail scratching the <laughs> side of a birdcage. And that suddenly sparked this mm. idea for a version of Sleeping Beauty, which is really a vampire story, mm. isn't it? The Lady um, of the House of Love. Mm-hmm. And, and what does she do in that story? Well, the Lady of the House of Love sets her sights on an innocent young man who comes strolling along. And um, she inverts, as she often did, the plot, because normally the vampire would suck dry the victim and the innocent would be a girl. So here the innocent, is, he's on a bicycle, I think. That's right, and he's a, he's a virgin, he's, he's yeah, expressive. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but her passion for him absolutely slides off him. He's unhurt and she fades away. So it's, a, so it's the inversion of the usual vampire story. And it's such a clever idea, I think, to take that idea of someone being sort of trapped in a, in a sort of coma state for 100 years, but map that onto this poor sort of victim of vampirehood who's been trapped in this being a vampire for mm, hundreds yes, of years. And yes. actually it's this, it's this sort of innocent who comes into her house who releases her from that um, and, and when uh, when she runs her finger along the bars mm. of the cage, it's a, a caged bird. So there it's an example of, you know, Angela Carter also wrote poems. And that's an example of her use of poetic imagery because clearly the caged bird is also vampirella. Aha, uh-huh, of course. And when this young man is approaching the house, he comes through these this thick thorn bush with, with roses that are just a bit too luxuriant, aren't they? And then you you discover at one point that it's the vampire's victims are the manure that's feeding this, <laughs> this rose bush, is why they're so sort yeah. of florid and Yes, but, and the, but waxy. the description is very perfect, I mean, very close. She was very, very good at sort of ekphrastic description, I mean, very good at clothes. She was stylish. And she liked evoking the wardrobes of her characters and did it very well. Well, she does very well. Just one last point on it is that one of the reasons that this young man is able to 
save the vampire in some ways is is that he's completely sort of immune to to her charms but also to being afraid rather like the the Grimm's character the boy who had to learn to shudder or yes. to shiver and she has a line in the story where she says this lack of imagination gives his heroism to the hero and that reminds me of a line she has in the Sleeping Beauty translation where she says a young prince in love is always brave that there's almost a sort of stupidity to heroism and bravery yes. a kind of blinkeredness yes I mean one of the ways that she didn't always get on with self-declared feminists, though she was a self-declared feminist, but she she was a controversial and often she had a lot of trouble in America, for example, is that she was very sympathetic. First of all, she wasn't that interested in the difference between men and women. Um, I mean, she didn't see it as a kind of absolute standoff. I mean, she saw it as social differences and class differences and money differences and so forth. But she was often sympathetic to men. Mm. I mean, she empathised with them. So here, here in a sense, the princes are not villains. I mean, in a lot of feminist fairy tales, the prince becomes a sort of bluebeard mm -hmm. figure, but she didn't always do that. Well, talking of which, let's move to a different location to talk about Bluebeard and the longest story in, in Carter's collection, The Bloody Chamber. <laughs> oh, I just saw some birds go over. Look like swallows. Oh, yeah, look there. Oh, there. my God, how wonderful. How marvellous. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hmm. 
You never saw such a wild thing as my mother, her hat seized by the winds and blown out to sea so that her hair was her white mane, her black lyle legs exposed to the thigh, her skirts tucked round her waist, one hand on the reins of the rearing horse while the other clasped my father's service revolver, and, behind her, the breakers of the savage indifferent sea, like the witnesses of a furious justice. So now we're just heading up to the top of Marina's house, past piles of books, to her study, and, and climbing up increasingly narrow stairs. The walls are covered in beautiful pictures, artworks, and now I'm emerging <laughs> into a fantasia of an office. Books piled everywhere, all around. <laughs> Sunshine streaming in. There's a look of Extremely organised chaos here, Verita, if you don't mind me saying so. I'm glad you think it's organised. <laughs> this is, this is a kind of what you dream of as a writer's uh, study. It's fabulous. Well, what a privilege to be sitting in your study, Marina, your secret den at the top of your house, the final locked door at the end of the winding <laughs> corridor. In Carter's collection, the story The Bloody Chamber is based on Perrault's story, La Barbe Bleue, and it's the longest story in her collection. Why do you think she was so fascinated by the story of Bluebeard? It's about sexual attraction, her story, whereas the Perrault story is really about attraction to money and status. The mother of the bride wants her very much to get married to this figure, and um, she, as it were, complies to that in, in Carter's version. But that isn't really her, her motive. Her motive mm. is, again, this latent idea, this idea of initiation. And Carter sees, I think she said somewhere, that she sees her as an apprentice, an apprentice in depravity, really. And she does that so superbly well. I mean, it's very sensuously written, very beguilingly characterised. I mean, he's very sinister. He's a Marquis de Sade figure. He's uh -huh. called a Marquis. But I've taught this story a lot. And young women, who were mostly my students, are very, very enthralled by it, but also disturbed. They worry why they find it so exciting. <laughs> and, that's, and that's because there is a sense of sexual initiation going on. She, the heroine, is, is being initiated into something. And I think Angela used the word corrupt. Uh -huh. that there's a corruption, a corrupt possibility in her nature, which the Bluebeard figure, the Marquis, brings out. Going back to the Perrault, for, for those listeners who don't know the story of Bluebeard so well, because it, it has started to be phased out of, of kind of children's versions of fairy tales, hasn't it? And So can you just recap for us what the original Bluebeard story is? Well, there's this terrifying man with a blue beard which is considered a sign of a sort of stigma of very serious, and people are very, very terrified of him. But he's looking for a wife, and the locals are kind of keen because he's extremely rich. And one of them pushes her daughters towards, towards him, and the first daughter doesn't want to get married, but the second daughter agrees. And then he says he has to go away on business. And he shows her a ring of keys. And he tells her that this is her chatelaine to the whole property. And she can go into anywhere and do whatever she wants with all his treasures and everything. But there is one little key on the ring which she must not use 
to a certain room. And, of course, that's the prohibition, that's the actual structural element of the fairy tale that immediately you know that that ban is going to be broken. She opens the door and then she sees hanging the bodies of all her previous predecessors, his wives. And then she hurriedly shuts the door, locks it. It's a horrific scene, isn't it? Yes, horrific scene. Gory blood all over the floor. In Carter's translation of it, um, she says that the floor was covered with clotted blood and in the blood lay the corpses of all the women whom Bluebeard had married and then murdered one after the other. Yes, that's right. And um, But she tries to conceal it from him, and he, but he can tell because, and this is one of these marvellous moments of enchantment in these stories, which are quite thin on enchantment actually, but which is the key was fairy and so the blood did not come off. And then he immediately seizes her by the hair and is about to kill her. And she asks for a little time to pray, to stave off the moment of execution. And she runs up to the top of the town. She calls for her sister and um, calls for her brothers. And, and then eventually her brothers come and save her. They kill Bluebeard just in the nick of time. And that ending of the original Perrault story was not liked by Angela. She right. made a very definite change, which we can come to. Yeah. <laughs> because, as you say, her version of the Bloody Chamber is a, a kind of initiation isn't it there's a, there's a equal attraction and you know at one point the bride says i longed for him and he disgusted me there's a kind exactly. of fear and desire at the yes, same time yes yes she had been working for a long time for many years actually on a book a study of the marquis de sade yes which arose as a topic in conversation with i mean so she was drawn to this type of um, milieu which you could call li- libertine she was interested in the relationship between the Enlightenment and libertinism, the fact that free sex sort of, or sexual adventures, sexual experiments, were part of some Enlightenment project. And the sad, of course, is the you know, most extreme possible version of this. And her book has st- stood the test of time very well as a study in pornography. Um, but it's outrageous in terms of you know, some feminist discourse on pornography because uh-huh. she sees it as a, a series of lessons in what the true nature of marriage is. It's an exchange of you know, chattel, women are chattels. She sees it as an instruction in masochism that Desaad saw the masochism in women and was sort of correcting it and opening up possibilities of how that could be used. So I think that this story, The Bloody Chamber, which was written quite late in the cycle, even though it's the opening story, takes off from her thinking about Saad. Uh-huh. She has a great line in that in that essay, The Sadean Woman, where she says, to be the object of desire is to be defined in the passive case, and to exist in the passive case is to die in the passive case, that is, to be killed. This is the moral of the fairy tale about the perfect woman. Yes. That it's the kind of cry well, so, to, of, to be active. To be so active she, was, she was opposing this, and, and mm-hmm. in her bloody chamber, after the fateful moment of seeing that all her predecessors have been killed, she actually takes things into her own hands and eventually ends up with a, a nice piano tuner. Yes, a blind piano tuner, <laughs> yes. yes. And who and you must reveal who rescues her because it's such a good moment. Well, that's the extraordinary moment, which when I was teaching the story for several years, um, the students really always wanted to write about it, is when her mother rides to the rescue. With, with, she's a sort of figure from a cowboy film, in a way. Yes. You know, almost brandishing her revolvers and it's her fabulous. pistols. And, it's really yes. fabulous. And I, I was saying that Bluebeard is, is kind of disappearing to some extent from common knowledge, but 
it crops up a lot in, in, in other versions, doesn't it? I mean, in the mid-19th century, a novel like Jane Eyre draws on, on fairy tale themes, doesn't it? Jane Eyre seems like a version of Cinderella, and then Rochester's house is a kind of Bluebeard's castle, isn't it, yes, with a secret w- locked room and a, and a yes, previous and a, wife said, behind yes, it. Yes, almost dead wife, yes. Yeah, exactly. Or a wife that's certainly not being cared for. And then we get a novel like Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, Rebecca which yes. has similarities, and and then a series of films like Hitchcock's adaptation of Rebecca and, and um, George Cukor's Gaslight, and and even something more recent like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is a kind of Bluebeard version, although in that, in that case, of course, uh, he doesn't get his comeuppance. No, no, not at all. And also, the writing is not... I mean, the, there are differences in quality, even if the storylines are the same. Yes. But actually, in, in Angela Carter's case, she changed the plots, too. I mean, this, this mother riding to the rescue is rather an unusual figure in her work. On the whole, she's not that interested in mothers. I mean, she's quite interested in stepmothers and why they're wicked. And, and some of her later, very late Cinderella stories, Ashputtel or The Mother's Ghost, are rather tender when she mm. had herself become a mother and was sort of more interested in maternity mm. and its m- emotions and passions. Mm-hmm. And then she wrote these very beautiful three little fragments of Cinderella stories much later. In The Bloody Chamber, she has a, a, a couple of stories that are inspired by Beauty and the Beast, which in mm. some ways is almost for kind of flip side of Bluebeard, isn't it? That it that's a story about a beast who turns out to be a lovely husband in the end, rather than a lovely husband who turns out to be a beast. She had critical views about that, though. I mean, even though she actually did translate, also translate Le Prince de Beaumont's story much later. But um, she once had a, one of her great pungent phrases. She said Beauty and the Beast was about house training the id. <laughs> That's very good, isn't it? Yes. But basically, unlike her bloody chamber, which is not about taming women's desires, yeah, releasing them, but about giving them authority over their own desires, she saw the the Beaumont version of Beauty and the Beast, in which he turns out to be, you know, a sweet young man behind the beast. She saw that as a cop out. <laughs> she, she wanted to retrieve the beast. She wanted to re- bring back the beast, and the, one of her stories, The Tiger's Bride, ends yes. with this magnificent line in which you know, he starts licking her and he, he and as, as he licks her... Um, Each stroke of his tongue ripped off skin after successive skin, all the skins of a life in the world and left behind a nascent patina of shining hairs. Mm. So she, bec- the woman she, becomes the a beast. The beast, yes. Yeah. So far from the beast becoming a human, she wanted to get back to this. And there's a tremendous love of animals and animality mm. in her work. I mean, all the wolves mm. in the Company of Wolves, which mm, is which one of her versions of Red Riding Hood. Uh-huh. There's um, this tremendous sense of the wolves' bodily presence. Yes. It's worth saying, just while we're talking about Beauty and the Beast, that that is not one of Perrault's tales, although it's from that same French sort of movement mm. of fairy tales. I, it often gets misattributed to him, but it's... Uh, it, it's, it, it's Madame too... de Beaumont. It's uh-huh. much later. Yes. But there was a, an earlier version by Madame de Villeneuve, um, which is really very, very different, but has a similar theme of the transfigured prince who has to be restored by the love of a human woman. Uh-huh. But in her version, The Tiger's Bride, it's the love of the beast that brings out the, it's the beast in the girl. It, it's fantastic. Isn't it? it is amazing how she, how she uses these stories to completely reconfigure what use we put these stories mm-hmm. to. She was a friend of um, the author Robert Coover, who also yes. was interested in repurposing mm. fairy tales and 
In one of her letters to him, she said, I really do believe that a fiction absolutely self-conscious of itself as a different form of human experience than reality can help to transform reality itself. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, do you think there was an element of The Bloody Chamber where she felt like by writing this book, she could change the world in some way? Well, I think she had self-confidence, but she wouldn't have had that much self-confidence. I mean, she 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 believed in her calling as a writer, and she believed that she had been changed by what she read and was reading all the time. I mean, she did believe she was a cultural loyalist. You know, she believed in the power of culture, which we are losing so much now. Um, I mean, it's really serious because without kind of common culture of this kind you can't actually make moral decisions about the STEM subjects. Mm-hmm. You can't know what to do yes, in law or, yeah. or in medicine or in, in economics or any of these things. You need, you need the common culture of values. And, I mean, she was interested in you know, emancipating women. She was interested in critiquing class difference and making the almost automatic respect for aristocracy. She was you know, doing something to that. Her love of the Ancien Regime was a form of style. Her mm. style is Baroque. Yes. Rococo, ornate, very stylish, very artificial. So all, the, all those qualities which we associate with the 17th century. But she made it serve a completely different purpose because she really was a very loyal and committed, engagé socialist and feminist socialist. I mean, she really was. Mm. It wasn't just a, mm-hmm. a sort of lip service. Absolutely. She said in a, in a 1983 interview that I'm in the demythologizing business. Mm. I'm interested in myths because they are extraordinary lies designed to make people unfree. And yes. it does feel like she's creating new myths. In, in her yeah, well, in fact, deflation and sort of puncturing is one of her hallmarks. And, and that she found in Peru, too. Mm. I mean, he definitely does that. He's deflationary. He makes little asides and jokes all the time about the conventions of the fairy tale. And she found that method, um, which is a very enlightenment. I mean, mm-hmm. the most vivid com- exponent of it is, is, is Voltaire. With Candide, yes, yeah, of yes. course. And so exaggeration, playing your audience in two ways, thrilling them and frightening them, and at the same time amusing them, tickling them, <laughs> and sort of managing to do that at, both at the same time. It's such a feat. Well, on that note, let's move on to our final mm-hmm. location to talk about one last fairy tale. Now a great howling rose up all around them, near, very near, as close as the kitchen garden, the howling of a multitude of wolves. She knew the worst wolves are hairy on the inside, and she shivered. In spite of the scarlet shawl, she pulled more closely round herself, as if it could protect her, although it was as red as the blood she must spill. Well, Marina and I are now perched side by side on on her spare bed, <laughs> looking out over the rooftops of North London. In the room is a is a large four poster bed which fills the space, and the walls are covered in again lovely paintings and and books piled wherever we look. And we've come into the bedroom to discuss the last fairy tale we're going to talk about today, which is perhaps the best known tale of all, Little Red Riding Hood. Marina, how do Perrault and then Carter approach this story? 
Well, Carter, in the very first paragraph, does something in addition to Perrault, which is she explains what a Red Riding Hood is, <laughs> because he doesn't tell us. Right, that. oh, that's good. So very, very early on, like the sort of fourth line, she says, the kind of coats that great ladies wear going out riding. Making so, sense of the name. Well, right. well, making sense of the name, but also, again, placing the story in a certain mm. milieu, because um, Perrault is very interested in how dangerous wolves are in society. Right, yes. He doesn't keep to the animal nature of the wolf. Definitely. You know, you get that from the very first page, only when he says that the poor child did not know how dangerous it is to chatter away to wolves. <laughs> and you know what he's getting to. Her translation of his moral is, she writes, Now, there are real wolves with hairy pelts and enormous teeth, but also wolves who seem perfectly charming, sweet-natured and obliging, who pursue young girls in the street and pay them the most flattering attentions. And unfortunately, these smooth-tongued, smooth-pelted wolves are the most dangerous beasts of all. Yes. She's driving it home, I mean, in a, in a very light and sophisticated way, but she's nevertheless making his moral even clearer because he just has one word, douceur, which is, means sort of sweet. Um, and she has three, the smooth-tongued. Mm. And she famously has a line in, I think, The Bloody Chamber about... The most dangerous wolves are hairy on the inside. Yes, that's such a <laughs> yes. creepy yes, yes, idea, yes, isn't yes. it? Yes. And of course, Perrault's story doesn't end with any reprieve. We are uh -huh. used to Red Riding Hood stories in which the father or a woodcutter or some paternal figure mm. um, turns up in the nick of time and yes. cuts Granny and Red Riding Hood out of the wolf's belly. Mm -hmm. um, that's the sort of ending that has now... Pretty that's much, the Grimm's ending, isn't it? It's pretty it? much yeah. conventional in, in children's literature now. But, of course, Perrault ends with it just... She gobbled her up and that was it. And Angela Carter remembers that her grandmother, after telling her the story, would pounce on her and pretend to eat her. And in a way, that, that memory of Angela's does catch the peculiar, quixotic kind of contradictory pleasure of the story. Why, why do we like stories in which little girls get eaten by wolves? You're right. And, and why do we like our grandmothers pouncing on us, pretending to eat us? And and Angela was interested in these contradictory emotions. And the the the, um, the folklorist Maria Tatas pointed out the the irony of that. But it's Angela Carter as a grandchild being pounced on by her grandmother, <laughs> pretending to be the wolf who just <laughs> eaten the grandmother of a story. It's a wonderful image, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Um, but yes, that sort of sexual allegory of the story, Paro brings out, doesn't he? Because when Little Red Riding Hood first arrives at her her granny's house, he has her take off all her clothes and lie down in the bed with her before he starts even talking to this wolf in the bonnet. So there's something there's it's very intimate straight away. And now how does Carter in the bloody chamber, how does she approach Little Red Riding well, Hood? Well she introduces a totally different denouement, you know, that Little Red Riding Hood was nobody's meat mm. and she's not a victim. I mean this is a strong theme in Angela Carter's feminism, that she really didn't like the idea that women were victims or, or that they would play their victimhood as a strength. That She was totally against that. She was very impatient of that. And her, her little red riding hood is a heroine of that metal. She is not going to be subdued even by a wolf. And she leaps into bed with him. And just thinking about that vignette of... of Angela Carter being pounced on by her own grandmother as a child. We often think of fairy tales as tales for children, primarily for children. 
And yet we've been talking today about some very adult mm. themes that are lying embedded within them. So in your view, are fairy tales for children? Well, in their origin and their history, they're for both. They were always told in family circles. And Walter Benjamin is quite right in The Storyteller when he says that you know they were to alleviate the tedium of ordinary tasks, especially in the winter, where you had to bottle peas, you know, shell nuts and spinning, all these very, very tedious domestic tasks which our forebears were saddled with um, before domestic appliances <laughs> created the need for entertainment. And there was an element of invention and embroidery, but also there was a, these core stories. I mean, I think that what's interesting about the fairy tale is that it's a hybrid form. It is double-tongued. The adults will get something different from it than the children. Mm -hmm. But what happens with the children is that certain elements of adult experience are passed on without the setting being an adult setting. So then they're not actually seeing people go to bed together, but they're hearing about the tensions. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a, it's a kind of code. And as you know, it's risen in age now. I mean, it was almost emphatically in the 19th century produced for children. Mm -hmm. In fact, you've got a wonderful historical a set of beautiful books, illustrated books, Arthur Rackham, of course, uh, yes. Edmund Dulac. You know, it was a kind of vogue for uh, the children of the elite to have these beautiful fairy tale books. And even Andrew Lang, his blue, rose, his coloured green, fairy books, co coloured yes. fairy books, which started in the 1880s and went on right through to the 1914, I think, or even later, perhaps. Um, Angela Carter really liked them, and she said they were a model for her mm. to some extent. Um, it's interesting because actually they're not, they were all rewritten by a, a team of women writers. So they were very expunged and very censored and not really at all what she was doing. But anyway, she was brought up on them and she really liked them. But that was a sort of example of where it was definitely for children. But now you find that there are infinite numbers of writers in many languages all over the world who are using fairy tales for adult mm -hmm. material, adult purposes, and using it in a very dark mode. Especially in the space of recent films, I feel that's true. Mm, that's yes. um, really drawn on the dark side of fairy tales. And I think both gothic, the sort of werewolf side of things, and, and also pornography have become, you know, the, the bonds that she, in a way, first showed between these forms are now pretty much acknowledged widely mm -hmm. and, and exploited widely too. You have a fascinating line in Once Upon a Time where you say that fairy tales are gradually turning into myths. Mm. So rather than being stories aimed at being optimistic or consoling, they're, mm -hmm. they're stories held in common but bearers of wisdom, deep, thought-provoking and illuminating. Yeah, and they don't have happy endings often so mm -hmm. anymore. Actually, Rowan Williams reviewed my book and disagreed profoundly, <laughs> said that myths were de definitely religion. You know, whereas where, I mean, they were to do with religious roots and right. spiritual values, and the fairy tales were not. You know, there was a distinction, but I, d I don't think there is really, because a lot of myths. I mean, Circe in the Odyssey yes. is definitely a fairy tale sorceress. I mean, she changes men into beasts, right, into pigs. Yes, yes. I mean, there are just hundreds of sea nymphs and mermaids are similar to so Calypso, who Odysseus lives with. And so I think they are turning into myths, and by that I mean. That they're seen as as a way of thinking about common experience, in the way that we, Madeira is very attractive to women directors and actors, because 
it seems to be a way of thinking about the extremes of women's anguish or maternal destructiveness and these are the experiences that need to be confronted but are very uncomfortable. And I think that similarly fairy tale goes into these mm -hmm. disturbing corners and tries to give us ways to cope with them. I mean, I think Angela Carter was doing that. I mean, she in Bluebeard, she's trying to cope with the contradiction that many of us experience, which is that we're extremely attracted to things that are not totally, you know... <laughs> Healthy. Yes. <laughs> and as a final question, Maria, why is it, do you think, that fairy tales have endured so long? And, and, and when you think about the future of fairy tales, what do you envisage? Well, I think the future of fairy tales is looking, as it were, more prosperous than it used to be. I mean, for a long time, when I was young, I, w I was ashamed of my liking of fairy tales because they were considered feminine, childish, silly, superstitious, just generally trash. And actually one of the reasons that I you know, so revered and revere Angela Carter is that she liberated so many of us from that fear of d being despised for liking fairy tales because she showed that they were actually intrinsically fascinating and rich and full of potential and full of possibilities. So th I think the future is, is good for fairy tales. One downside of that future is that fairy tales are adapted to global entertainment because it is a sort of Esperanto mm -hmm. in which you can understand these figures if you're in Korea or if you're in Australia or if you're in Alaska. So it's an international shorthand. Even the symbols, you know, the keys, the glass slippers, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the apples, the, it's very much a kind of common language. And that's a good thing because it binds people together. But it's also a negative effect, which is that it makes a common denominator and loses granularity and loses richness, which is what Angela Carter's bloody chamber stories restored to the fairy tales, made them extremely rich linguistically. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of the films that I've seen, I haven't seen all of them by any means, tend to kind of work out the plots in rather stock ways and they, they lose mm -hmm. enchantment. But then you get one, I mean, the one that I loved was the Snow White by Pedro Berger. I haven't seen it. Amazing that. film, mm -hmm. marvellous. Catalan film. So it can be done. Well, Marina, on that point, let me say thank you very much for joining us today to talk about Charles Perrault, Angela Carter and fairy tales. I'm very grateful. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you. Many thanks to Dame Marina Warner, to Audible for the recording of Amelia Fox reading from The Bloody Chamber, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with James Thurber's 1939 fairy tale, The Little Girl and the Wolf. One afternoon, a big wolf waited in a dark forest for a little girl to come along carrying a basket of food to her grandmother. Finally, a little girl did come along and she was carrying a basket of food. Are you carrying that basket to your grandmother? asked the wolf. The little girl said yes, she was. So the wolf asked where her grandmother lived and the little girl told him and he disappeared into the wood. When the little girl opened the door of her grandmother's house, she saw that there was somebody in bed with a nightcap and nightgown on. 
She had approached no nearer than 25 feet from the bed when she saw that it was not her grandmother, but the wolf. For even in a nightcap, a wolf does not look any more like your grandmother than the Metro-Goldwyn-Lion looks like Calvin Coolidge. So the little girl took an automatic out of her basket and shot the wolf dead. Moral. It is not so easy to fool little girls nowadays as it used to be. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.